And welcome to the Transfer Window. This is the podcast that not only takes you inside the biggest deals at the biggest clubs in world football, but brings you insight and analysis of the issues that matter every Monday, Wednesday and Friday. I'm Johnny McFarlane and joining me are pundits extraordinaire Duncan Castles and Ian McGarry. On today's Transfer Podcast, it's your questions answered. And with up to 10 players doubtful to make tonight's clash with Crystal Palace, we ask if Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is overtraining his Manchester United charges. Neymar didn't make the Ballon d'Or top 10. We look at his declining profile in world football since signing for PSG. And does Brendan Rodgers move from historic Titan Celtic to Leicester City expose the brutal polarisation of top-level football finance? Okay, guys, well, we're going to start with uh, not a question, but something that has engendered many, many comments on our social media feed at Transfer Podcast, and I think on the guys' Twitter as well, with regards to Manchester United and the amount of players that are currently injured. Now, we've seen Ole Gunnar Solskjaer say in the last uh, wee while that he's looking to have as many as 10 players unavailable for their trip to London against Crystal Palace. This makes one wonder, Ian, uh, if there's something specific that's going wrong at Manchester's training ground. Is there a, a problem with uh, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's methods? Is he overtraining them? Or is it simply bad luck? I'm sure <clears throat> Solskjaer would regard it as bad luck, Johnny. Um, but given the technology now available to football managers and coaches, specifically the advancement of sports science and medicine, <clears throat> the application of complex algorithms in software which can now um, not just monitor biometrically every player every day in training every player who plays um, in any match and that be that um, in the first team or under 23s etc they're coming back um, these uh, <clears throat> programs are designed to um, alert the coaching staff when a player is more susceptible to an injury especially because of the easiest to predict soft tissue muscle injuries, which is uh, what Manchester United have been suffering, especially uh, during the game uh, against Liverpool last weekend. One has to assume that A, Solskjaer's using and heeding um, the sports science, sports medical teams, uh, Old Trafford, who you would expect to be amongst the best in the world. Um, and therefore, the question is, begs to be asked, well, why have Manchester United got potentially 10 players out right now? <clears throat> and why did they lose four players, one in the warm-up and three during the first half, um, to soft tissue, well, one knock and other soft tissue muscle injuries as well? Now, I go back to something Duncan quoted uh, on the podcast already about Solskjaer's initial press conference where he said, Manchester United should not be being outrun by any team, whether that's primarily going anywhere else. Um, uh, we have referenced the fact that um, uh, Solskjaer has introduced uh, longer and sometimes double training sessions in the short time that he's been there. But I'd go back to something um, which I find to be poignant and significant about Solskjaer, and that is his involvement of Sir Alex Ferguson and his at this moment, short time as head coach at Manchester United. 
Ferguson was famous <clears throat> for um, training his players hard. He's also equally infamous for if a player was injured and was probably only 80%, 70% even, sometimes less depending on which player it was. Roy Keane in particular would often play injured for him and has admitted that. He pointed to the badge and said, this is Man United, you play and you will commit yourself 100% to playing because the result was more important than the individual. <clears throat> I suspect, I could be wrong, but I would venture um, the notion that Solskjaer, in invoking the Ferguson spirit, which many people believe has been um, crucial in achieving the results that he's achieved so far um, in his reign uh, at Old Trafford, he also has maybe gone over the top with regards to um, applying the method. Because what Ferguson was very good at doing, which Solskjaer so far hasn't been, is rotating players. And when Ferguson would look three, four, five games in advance, um, he would take the advice of his less sophisticated at the time, sports medical, sports science staff, and say, right, and he would pick teams three weeks in advance often, to play, and he would tell key players like Paul Scholes or David Beckham, you won't be playing in this game, you know, two weeks from today because I need you to rest. So that week I'm going to give you a bit of time off. Um, you're going to rest and recuperate. You can even go away for two or three days uh, in the sunshine, etc., and come back fresh because we've got a much more important game for you to play in on the Wednesday night or the following Saturday. Now, if you're Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and your absolute ambition is to get that job full-time, then maybe, just maybe, you're tempted to just run the players as hard as you possibly can in the hope that you don't get injuries rather than the expectation that you might and so that you get the best chance possible of taking up that position and being full-time coach for pre-season training in the, this, this next summer coming when perhaps you will be able to be a little bit less hard on the players in terms of training, but you gamble on being overly hard on them now. I think, I think this whole issue of um, fitness and uh, managing resources is something that isn't really fully understood outside um, the confines of, of professional football clubs. The demands on professional footballers are harder than they've ever been. Um, they play more matches. They're expected to run further. They're expected to run at higher intensity. Their, their physical output on the field is measured, um, not only during matches, but during training. Um, clubs will stick up the data from training sessions on the board to show the players how they measure up against each other. Lots of managers will select players on the basis of, of their output in training sessions and games. Um, and we have more and more fixtures. You, one thing I think you can see in common with every top-level manager who's come to the Premier League is a complaint about um, not having a winter break, about the number of games that Premier League English football asks um, its clubs to play in that um, worst time of the season to be playing games when they don't have a break, uh, and about the... The, the, the frequent occasions during the season where they have less than two full days to prepare for matches. You'll see that from Klopp, you see that from Antonio Conte, you see that from Mourinho, 
You'll see it from Pochettino. Everyone, Guardiola, everyone complains about it. None of them are happy about it. And they all know, everyone in um, sports science knows that the Premier League players are being pushed beyond safe limits um, in terms of trying to play, particularly in these condensed periods, too much high-intensity football in a short period of time. There's a lot of science goes into it. There's a lot of debate over the best ways um, to get your players fit, keep them fit and avoid injury. There's an interesting study that actually Southampton uh, Football Club released um, this month where uh, they talked about increasing the amount of load during uh, training sessions to strengthen the body up um, to allow the players to deal with more chronic load uh, sorry, uh, so give them more chronic load with that strengthening up to, to allow them to deal with acute load from one or two matches in a short period of time. And the idea being if you if you load the players heavier in, in training sessions, then they're, they're more um, able to deal with these acute spikes. That's um, it's an interesting science. It's a small study. There's debates over the best ways to do it. But what's not up for debate is... If you want to be successful in the Premier League, you have to manage those playing resources and you have to try and minimise injuries. And a big part of the science is deciding um, when a player is capable of going on the pitch um, and how much um, stress you can put on them in training to avoid injuries during the season. A uh, couple of examples. When, when Tim Sherwood came in as Tottenham manager to replace um, Andrew Villas-Boas, um, he immediately ended up with having one of his um, most uh, prominent players injured in the training session. I think it was Andrus Townsend, who was in a very good run of form, got into the England team at the time. And he got injured with a soft muscle injury after his first training session. Um, what I was told was that um, the, the first training session was the day after the game. Um, Sherwood had them doing extra shooting practice after the, the normal training session. And obviously shooting practice puts a, a lot of load on the muscles and surprise, surprise, you end up with um, what was quite a bad um, uh, muscle injury on a key player as a result of that. And that, I think, or that was described by people involved in the game as there's a manager who doesn't understand the science behind loading players and these are the kind of costs you get from it. Um, Manchester United specifically, if you look at where Louis van Gaal was as manager of the club and you look at the number of injuries they suffered at that time, they had a real problem with it. It was notorious um, how many injuries they had in the last season, how many players were unavailable, how that affected their ability to try and qualify for the Champions League, which they ultimately failed to do. When Jose Mourinho came in um, with Rui Faria as his as his um, assistant, who's an, uh, known as one of the... the the sort of world-leading specialists in the kind of management of players, the training of players, and the avoidance of injury, their injury, weight, injury rate went significantly down. And these numbers are available um, for anyone to see. Uh, they, they turned into one of the, from being one of the worst teams in the Premier League to having one of the best availability rates in the Premier League, despite going all the way through the season to Europa League campaign. This season... Manchester United's injuries have gone back up. And I don't think it's a coincidence that that has happened initially after Faria resigned as um, assistant manager and the fitness 
um, regime being used at Manchester United changed with an Italian fitness coach coming in and to take on some of Faria's duties. So they have had, they had had more injuries with Solskjaer coming into the team. But what they didn't, they haven't had at any point is this kind of rash of acute injuries that they're getting now. And as we said in the podcast on Monday, it really is um, to, to see three players coming off inside 45 minutes with soft muscle tears, mm-hmm. uh, with one of them being someone who, who was on the bench, uh, who they knew had an injury and they decided to risk him. He comes off the bench the first time he sprints, he's lost um, he, he, he's off again, doesn't matter, he, he plays for just 12 minutes. They'd already lost Matic in training, again, a soft tissue injury. And I think um, it's very clear that Solskjaer has been overtraining them, has not been rotating them enough. It's, he's been going for results immediately, which he's got. Um, uh, but now he's now has to pay the price of um, the methods he's used to get partially to get those results, which is to put too much pressure on the player. And, you know, we, we've the consensus has been that Manchester United have been such a good run of form, such momentum behind them, that they were basically quite safe bets to take that fourth place and get Champions League qualification. The momentum's still there, the results are still there, but ultimately, if you don't have the players to put on the field, and on Wednesday, he's, he's getting towards that issue of being very strained in his selection, then it's much harder to keep those results going. So um, it's an interesting test of, of Solskjaer's management. It'll be interesting to see um, what changes, if any, he makes to the training regime um, to try and avoid having this issue for the remainder of the season. OK, well, we're going to move on now, and we are obviously answering questions from our fans today, and someone has given us one here at... Olsen SK, and I think this is one of these ones that you file under the trying to catch us out territory, but little do they know that Mr. Well, Dr. Duncan Castles does have a PhD in an area similar to this. So, Duncan, no pressure, but I'm expecting you to be able to answer this one. Why do dogs have wet noses? I have no idea why dogs have wet noses. I'm sorry, that is beyond um, my scientific and, and footballing knowledge. Uh, and you're a dog owner. You're a disgrace. I like the fact that dogs have uh, wet noses, but I haven't researched why they have dogs. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's disappointing, frankly, for a graduated doctor. Um, consider me upset. Uh, sorry about that, at Olsen SK. We, we, I figured that that one would be in Mr. Castle's purview, but clearly he was out pubs drinking and watching football when he should have been studying. Poor. Right, we're going to move on now to a question from at Neville's Advocate. Um, everyone needs an advocate, and it's good to see that Gary Neville actually has one. Um, his question is with regards to Neymar at PSG. He asks, um, when the Ballon d'Or was announced, Neymar uh, has dropped into not being even in the top 10. Has he lost some respect amongst the football world uh, after his move to PSG? Um, it's not just a move to PSG, Johnny. It's, it's his general behaviour. Um, I mean, we saw... We also the viral, uh, you know, gifts and videos that were put out. Uh, my favourite being, uh, this was during the World Cup last year, 
um, a whole class of seven-year-olds, or so I should say, the team of seven-year-olds in Dundee, somewhere famous, uh, somewhere close to Duncan's heart, when um, the coach tells them to run and then shouts Neymar and they all roll around on the pitch. <laughs> Please look it up if you haven't seen it. You've got like 19 seven-year-olds all rolling around shouting. And one of them even swears in the, with the phrase, you tried to kill me. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, <clears throat> okay, joking aside, I think the um, the antics in terms of diving and play-acting, etc. Um, professional footballers will always acknowledge um, a fellow player who's brilliant and talented and will respect that player for um, for who he is and, and what he's achieved, etc., etc. Um, in the case of Neymar, um, he tends to, you know, blur the divide between respect and taking the mickey, I think. Um, he is someone who is widely regarded, as we know, to have changed club from one of the great historic champions of world football in Barcelona to one of the nouveau riche in PSG purely for his £500,000 a week contract. That in itself invokes envy amongst fellow players. Um, but as I said, uh, I think it's his behaviour as much as anything else. Um, uh, Duncan actually once told me um, uh, that uh, a coach who had been involved with Neymar told him that the problem with Neymar is he's still a child and that he would rather be a player, the same player, two or three times than if effectively provide the ball which creates the goal-scoring opportunity or helps to create the goal-scoring opportunity. So that doesn't go down well with his teammates um, and it also winds up opposition players. Um, we've mentioned the play-acting, which winds people up full stop. I personally find it incredible that he, every single year of his his um, playing career in Europe, he manages to get injured at the time when it's his sister's birthday. Um, in fact, this year he managed to get his own birthday off as well with his current metatarsal injury, something which he suffered similar injury last year at the same time. Um, and you know what's interesting? We saw what PSG did to Manchester United at Old Trafford in the Champions League without Neymar, without Cavani and without Rabiot. And I just wonder if his position in the Ballon d'Or is not only um, significant about uh, where he stands with within the game in terms of his uh, who, who respects him and who values him and, and, and whatnot, but also at PSG, where they may be thinking, do you know what, is he really worth 500 grand a week and all the aggro he causes us? Um, he's become a bit of a show pony. Um, uh, and unfortunately, PSG are uh, Europe's show pony team in terms of um, how easy it is for them to win Ligue 1. They don't have to try very hard. So they, you know, we've said this before, they effectively have about 16 um, very competitive games uh, a year and the majority of them come in the Champions League. So, yeah, um, I think it's a very interesting question from our, our listener and um, I think as well uh, that it's, it's correct to make that assumption. And I would not be surprised um, if Neymar is not aware of, of this, you know, he's someone with a, an ego, someone who has advisors who look at the trends in uh, in football, like with social media, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That's something he's been very good at promoting his brand through social media. And um, with Real Madrid, Real Madrid so keen to sign him this summer, and with the amount of money that they have to spend, um, maybe just maybe 
he'll take the right decision and uh, go back to a team where he can actually compete at that very highest level and and show what he's worth as a player because uh, you know everyone you hear every professional footballer always says it's a short career. Well, you know Neymar's not old yet, but he he still needs to prove himself in terms of trophies. And um, I think you know moving away from PSG is the only way he's going to do that with any sense of credibility. Yeah, I think that's a very good spot from our listener and and all the more notable on that Ballon d'Or's France Football Award. Uh, so it's uh, that will be seen as a real slap in the face for a player who is supposed to be the, the, the premier footballer in France and uh, the premier footballer at, at Paris Saint-Germain, um, the biggest club in, in France. Um, interesting, you mentioned that video, Ian. I, I mean, I remember those, those videos during the World Cup and it was only when I was researching um, an article I did on, on Madrid's uh, renewed interest in pursuit of Neymar um, the other week that I discovered that Neymar himself had made a video um, along exactly the same lines uh, and posted it on Instagram with, uh, with him teaching some kids um, to dive and, and, uh, and shout it's, it, it's a foul to, to referee, which is actually quite humorous, but um, I think got completely, obviously got completely lost for most people during the World Cup when he was the, the, the target of the, um, of the ridicule um, from most of the world, and I, I think, I think it's, it, you have to look at the nature of the Ballon d'Or in that it's voted for um, by journalists, selected by France Football. So um, you're getting that element of uh, the, the, the sort of the general public's uh, uh, as filtered through the media's opinion of a player. So that, so I think that would um, certainly result in him dropping down uh, the, the league table, if you like, of candidates for, for the World Footballer of the Year trophy. But I think also um, it, it would be fair to say that his, his image has, uh, well, he hasn't done his image any favours in, in, the, in the mind of fellow professionals um, with the way he has behaved at, at Paris Saint-Germain. Um, you know, the stories have been uh, well disseminated um, they've been well substantiated. He's not behaving um, as a player of his status should do. Um, and that doesn't go down well with, uh, with other people in the game, be they coaches or players or referees. Um, and uh, as you say, he still has this tendency to um, unnecessarily embarrass opponents, something he's had in his game since he was a teenager. Um, and that doesn't go down well, obviously, with an opponent in a match. And I think is is also quite a dangerous um, uh, thing to to take fun in because every so often that fullback that you've um, used the rainbow flick um, to embarrass uh, unnecessarily on the pitch is going to come in and take you at the knees. Um, so, yeah, there there are lots of of elements there, uh, but the key element I think is he's not fulfilling his potential. Uh, despite the goal-scoring numbers he's got at Paris Saint-Germain, um, his ability on the ball is such that he should be up there with Messi um, and Cristiano Ronaldo and Kylian Mbappe in terms of being absolutely decisive. But he's never done that on a regular basis um, uh, and never done it as the central figure at a club. Um, and 
the question remains as to whether he is ever going to do that, whether he's ever going to add that degree of maturity um, and focus to take himself, take his game to another level. And, you know, the parallels here with Paul Pogba, I think, are, are quite, um, quite marked. I think, you know, I think Pogba is more professional than Neymar, but Pogba has the same issue of um, all the talent in the world, but what's letting him down more than anything else is application of that talent um, and application at the key moments. Pogba can look brilliant uh, against inferior opposition, but how often have we seen him looking brilliant against the top opposition? How often does he go missing in the games that really matter, such as Paris Saint-Germain, um, such as Liverpool um, at the weekend? Uh, it's at, at present, it's too often. I think one of the harsh truths that Neymar will not want to confront um, as well is that he left Barcelona because he felt like he would always be under Messi's shadow and so therefore would never be the main man. He's got a PSG to be the main man and he's got some incredibly talented players to play up front You know, for Messi, Suarez, Neymar, Reid, uh, Neymar, Mbappe, Cavani. So it's not like he's got or he's missing out on the um, the talent to play around him. But since he's supposed to be the central talent, I think he's finding that it's more difficult than it was to play as best supporting actor to Leo Messi because the old MSN, as it was known, the Trident, were absolutely, uh, you know, they, they were imperious in the Liga. And Neymar's, the recognition Neymar got as a member of that attacking three led to his um, world record transfer and also now to the travails we see him struggling with in France. So um, his, cho- his choice now is fairly stark. Does he go back to you know to Spain and maybe play in a, a new Trident at Real Madrid? Um, now that Ronaldo's not there, maybe he would be top dog, but can he handle that? Um, or does he stay at Paris Saint-Germain and as Duncan has said, fail to fulfil his potential because he's not playing a competitive football um, regular enough for that to be the case. Um, and that's just a simple fact of playing in Ligan. So um, I think it'd be a very interesting summer for, for Neymar um, and for PSV, uh, PSG in, in terms of what decision is made around um, where he's going to be playing football next season. Yep, Neymar's that old adage of uh, hard work beating talent when talent doesn't work hard, isn't it? Right, we're going to move on now to at Piers Hanifan, who's asked, when is Guardiola's tactical fouling going to be exposed, Duncan? <laughs> uh, interesting question to put to, to us at the Daily Record um, Transfer Window podcast, since it was the Daily Record who uh, wrote about... Um, Guardiola's tactical fouling um, in December 2017 um, to uh, to a great deal of abuse from Manchester City supporters who felt uh, it was unfair to point out that um, Guardiola teams consistently uh, foul at a higher rate when they don't have the ball uh, than their, their opposition. Um, but Just think... about the time, Duncan, as well, when you were telling everyone that Cristiano Ronaldo was unhappy and probably going to move in the summer. <laughs> could be. Whatever could happened be, there? <laughs> <laughs> could be. I don't remember that one. But um, look, I, I think it, it it has actually been 
um, exposed, it is now uh, it is now a topic of conversation. It's now something that's referenced by um, commentators, uh, by analysts during games. Um, I don't think uh, referees have really um, done much um, to clamp down on it. Um, it's still fundamental to Manchester City's system in the Premier League. It allows Guardiola teams to attack um, so high up the pitch um, with so many players and to play um, a smaller uh, group of players, smaller, more agile, more capable players who, who fit um, the kind of attacking play he wants. So it's fundamental to it, but I still don't see many referees noticing that when David Silva or Raheem Sterling takes out the opposition fullback uh, in the corner uh, to stop a quick counter-attack, um, that that's a, as, as important a foul as, for example, um, you know, a Leicester City uh, central midfielder taking out a Manchester's Kevin De Bruyne um, 40 yards from goal. Um, the, the two things can turn into goal-scoring opportunities for the opposition very quickly, and that's why the, their managers of the respective teams are telling them to do it. But how often do Silva, Raheem Sterling go through games with multiple fouls and no yellow cards? And, and you know, it's almost not worth mentioning how, how many times Fernandinho gets away with um, with tactical fouls during games because it has it's almost laughable um, the the way he he seems to have a, a special get-out-of-jail card with, with Premier League referees when it comes to that kind of um, deliberate stopping of the opposition. And Is that a case of persistent fouling that referees should be drilling down into the, into the rules for in terms of a, as a way to shield clubs from that? Or is it more a case of professional fouls that you think... They're, they're professional fouls and, and referees in the Premier League have got better at the kind of Leicester City thing that I talked about. You know, something... That, but Leicester City is unfair to pin it on them because every club does it. But that, that foul where you t- trip a player, um, uh, take a player out 40 yards from goal because it's, it's a 3v3 um, to the opposition and there's clear danger of them scoring, it usually gets booked in the Premier League. Now, you know, the, the, the referees are pretty canny to it and they, they usually take action. So they, they have the right to book a player um, when he makes a foul that stops a promising attack for the opposition. They just don't seem to see that with with Manchester City, because the way they flood so many bodies up the field, um, that a, you know, David Silva or little Raheem Sterling deliberately taking a player out because they know a counter-attack is on and they've been instructed to do it by their coach is the same thing. And, you know, it it drives opposition managers up the wall. They, They... you know, they hate the fact that City get away with this and, and City get the praise for being uh, the exponents of beautiful football. And you know, I, I think in that column I used the phrase anti-football and I've seen other people use it and it is, it's a form of anti-football, ironically. But it's not, but it's not illegal, Duncan. No, it's not illegal. It's not, absolutely it's not illegal. It's clever, it's intelligent, but it does, that doesn't stop the referees from saying, okay, we see what you're doing here. We're going to give your players a yellow card from it um, in the same way as we'd give uh, Jordan Henderson a yellow card uh, for taking Kevin De Bruyne out uh, when, when Manchester City have a, a good chance to score to try and stop Henderson from doing it again in the game. And if, if they did that, that would limit Manchester City's ability 
to stop the, the opposition playing football. And stopping the opposition playing football is a form of anti-football. You know, just because it allows you to play nicer football yourself doesn't mean it should be acceptable yeah. from a refereeing point I, of view. I mean, we should point out that <clears throat> excuse me, at the start of every season, um, every Premier League club is visited by one of the elite referees who's part of PGMOL. And there is always a, one issue which they highlight um, as being something that both Premier League FA, PGMOL, um, want to stamp out. Now, we saw a big crackdown, if you remember, on players holding attacking players at set pieces and a whole raft of penalties were given where were never given before because this was one of the things that um, they had decided they were going to crack down on. I think that's now died down because it was fashionable at the time and now it's gone. At the start, mm-hmm. of, this, at the start of this season, um, every club, every, every remember this is the players attend a whole day of educational sem- um, seminars with this referee. And it's fully open to question and answer, etc., etc. The beginning of this particular season, they were told that um, simulation was going to be cracked down on and that any player found guilty of simulation um, by retrospect, if the referee missed it, would get a two-game ban. Um, therefore, uh, do not simulate because not only do you risk being yellow carded at the time, but if it's not seen by the referee, you could actually be banned anyway, regardless. Now, the only way this is going to change, in my view, is is if the if PGMOL decide that this is an issue they have to address um, ahead of next season. And given that it's Manchester City and Liverpool to a certain extent, Duncan, I think you'll agree, um, those big clubs don't expect their tactics to be singled out by the authorities. And so I'd be very surprised if things changed. And as pointed out, at this moment in time, that kind of behaviour is not legal. I think it is clever. Um, I'm not saying it's correct morally or ethically in terms of the spirit of the game. But I think that if it's going to be addressed at all, it would have to be addressed in the manner that I've said. And I just don't see that happening. Yeah, look, it's... I, I don't have any issue at all with Guardiola using it as a tactic. I think it's very clever. It's a really intelligent response to the way the Premier League is. Um, he had a very tough first season in English football. He intensified the use of this tactic as a response. He saw, you know, he spent most of that first season complaining about the refereeing in England, justifiably, saying it allowed uh, more aggression from players. I agree with him on that. Uh, but instead of complaining, he said, well, if, I'm a, if, if you're allowed more aggression in, in England and if referees turn a blind eye to fouls, then I'll increase the fouling rate of my team to help them play more attacking football. You know, that's, that's really intelligent and clever management. What I do object to is um, that it imbalances the division and you end up with quite boring games where City roll over um, opponents who never have a chance to attack. So if, if you refereed this properly and if you said when, a, when Manchester City use a tactical foul, you get a yellow card, which limits them, which allows the opposition more opportunity to attack them on the counter, we get more interesting games. More teams would score against them and they'd be put under, under pressure um, to actually beat uh, these sides rather than roll them over, as they often do. But the, the biggest objection I have is Guardiola lies about it. You, know, you ask him about this and he says he doesn't do it. 
and I, I, I it's a personal thing. I, I just I don't like um, coaches and individuals who can't own up to things that they do when it when it's absolutely blatantly obviously do it. And in Manchester City's case, they have a club documentary um, where <laughs> the coaches are on in that documentary instructing specifically instructing the players to foul early. Uh, yeah, Guardiola, if you go in a press conference asking about it, will say, no, I never tell my players to intentionally follow the opposition. Just, just ludicrous. Right, well, we're going to move on now to Brendan Rodgers um, and his move to Leicester City. Um, we've had a number of questions asking about whether or not he is going to be a success uh, moving back to the Premier League. He obviously had success previously when he was at Liverpool and got them very, very close to the title. One from uh, at Jeff VV Ray. How well will Brendan Rodgers do at Leicester City when he joins? Duncan. Look, it's um, as uh, Johnny Northcroft um, analysed for us uh, when he was on the podcast uh, the week before last. And, and Johnny's a, a real specialist in Leicester City. He lives in the city. Um, wrote a book about their title-winning season, um, knows a lot of people at the club. As he said, it's a good job uh, to get. Um, they have a, a very uh, talented squad of players, uh, younger players, an exciting team to watch. I think I enjoy watching Leicester City play football. I think under Puel, they've played much better football than they did um, when they won the title season. It's more, it, it, it's a more, uh, it's a more interesting game. Um, Title season football was very well executed, but it was pretty predictable in what they were doing. Um, they have a lot of money. Um, they have, uh, you know, very wealthy owners who I, th I think are showing no um, resistance to putting additional cash into the club. They're spending on a, a hundred million pound new training ground. Um, so, in terms of jobs outside the top six clubs. Um, to take in England at present, that's a very good one. I, I would rank it alongside Wolves. Um, I would rank it higher than Everton because of the, the mess Everton are, the, the, the sort of inherent disorganisation of the, of the club uh, they have. But, you know, it's in that, it's in that group of, of clubs that have got um, big financial resources, a decent squad of players already, um, and an opportunity um, to... To do well um, with the kind of limited expectations that come with being outside the big six, with with the 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 lack of attention, so you're you're not in the the limelight um, every press conference, every round of press conference, every round of matches at Leicester. You can get away with uh, doing some stupid things and getting bad results because it's not going to be headline story um, and that's very different to where Brendan Rodgers has been um, at his last two jobs. Obviously, Celtic, you're always a story. Liverpool, you're always a story. And I think it's at, at Liverpool in particular, um, that, that kind of ended it for him. You know, ultimately, the pressure of being in the spotlight, um, his, his uh, aptitude for saying pretty ridiculous things, he's actually um, got quite a, uh, quite a lot in common with Jurgen Klopp in terms of the... the uh, ability to come up with excuses um, in press conferences and and say things that, that clearly aren't the case. Um, I think that eventually wore Rodgers down when even the Liverpool support um, started to grow tired of it. 
tired of it and and say uh, we need to change. Um, and I think you know it'll be a big difference from from where he's at at Celtic, where he'd he'd basically fallen out with the board. He'd been fighting with them over recruits um, to have a better chance of doing well in the Champions League, which was very important for him. He at least for a, a certain period of time should have great buy-in from the board at Leicester, um, the ability to, you know, a big budget to sign the kind of players he wants and and, um, and alter and play the kind of football he wants. So um, I can understand why he's, he's taken um, this opportunity up and I think it is, it's a good one for him to, to actually demonstrate what his real strength as a manager, as a coach are. Of course, regular transfer window listeners will know that Ian McGarry is a big Celtic fan. So this was the question is, Ian, will you be going to sleep tonight on a giant pillow to capture all those tears? No, I'll, I'll be supporting Brighton Hove Albion against Leicester City uh, this evening. That's what I'll be doing as my local club. Um, I think this is a coup for Leicester City. That may sound weird, given that they're taking a, a manager from the, the SPFL. But Brendan Rodgers has a very you know interesting CV with what he did do at Liverpool, um, what he did at Swansea and getting them promoted in the first season, leading to 11th uh, place finish in the Premier League, which effectively got him the Liverpool job. And um, they've been clever. They have noted the um, fallouts between uh, Rodgers and the directors at Celtic and the owner with regards to their ambition. Um, the fact that um, he has achieved everything that they could possibly have asked for in winning every trophy domestically that he has contested since his time at Celtic and will leave having done so. Uh, the only Celtic manager in history, I believe, to have done that. What I find slightly odd is the timing and the fact that he's leaving mid-season, but my information is that um, it was made plain to, to him that the job would not be available to him potentially in the summer if he decided to see out the, the season at Celtic and that was the plan and therefore he had to make a decision now. Um, my information is also that he will certainly double his current salary and that may also even be trebled should he achieve certain um, uh, uh, things with regards to where Leicester finish in the Premier League um, etc and then what happens next season in terms of a pay rise so um, clearly, financially, it's it's uh, a big thing for for him. And um, I guess just as I said, I see Leicester being clever in the sense that they've exploited the fact that there is a you know a schism between Rogers and his current employers. I don't think, um, I don't believe that Leicester City would be Brendan Rogers' first choice of job coming back into the Premier League. I don't even think that necessarily would be his second choice. Um, but it gives him the opportunity to re-establish himself in the league that he wants to succeed in. Um, he is very ambitious and he believes that he belongs amongst elite coaches um, and that means top four in England. So I think that he is giving himself a platform and this is no disrespect to Leicester City um, who've got themselves a very good manager but he sees the opportunity with financial backing that he's not had at Celtic to improve Leicester City to the point where he will then be reconsidered as a credible candidate for a job um, the likes of Chelsea, 
Manchester United, Manchester City, Liverpool, Tottenham, wherever. Um, because, uh, and it's interesting, isn't it? Because uh, you would normally say uh, that going to a team like Leicester City in terms of winning trophies is a glass ceiling, i.e. you're not going to win one. But they won the Premier League just three years ago and no one expects them to do that again. So in, in many ways, the pressure on Rodgers on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis that there is at Celtic to win every single game will be relieved. Um, I'm not saying that he will not work himself as hard or um, in any way um, uh, reduce his own um, ambitions or reduce um, his targets for the club that he manages because clearly if he moves Leicester set up the league, if they play better football, they get results against big clubs, etc., then he gets noticed, the club does well and everyone wins. Um, And that's where... I think Brendan Rodgers has made his decision uh, to leave Celtic uh, in mid-season, which I said he didn't want to do, um, and then and take on this job because it's it's there. And there are very few clubs, as Duncan has pointed out, where you've got that level of potential investment in terms of recruitment and um, facilities, uh, in terms of the new training ground as well. Uh, you've also got a very loyal fan base. What I'm slightly concerned about from his point of view is that his tactical approach to football is very similar to Claude Puel in playing more expansive possession-based football, which um, Johnny Northcoff told us was something the fans were um, not identifying with. And indeed, um, I heard an interview with Jimmy Vardy replayed only yesterday um, from last December where he himself questioned uh, Claude Puel's um, philosophy of management in playing passing football, patience, possession-based uh, you know, wait for the the right moment to attack. Now, in in the SPFL, um, those opportunities if you're Celtic manager come up much more often than they do in the Premier League. But at the same time, again, Brendan's ability to manage tactically, discipline and um, motivate his players and his team is one which um, he takes a lot of pride in, and therefore uh, improving Leicester, as I said. And again, no disrespect to Leicester, I think will be seen as, I hate to use the word stepping stone, but I'm pretty sure that somewhere in Brendan's mind, that's exactly the word that he's thinking of. That's the micro, Duncan. But what about the macro? What does this tell us about the power structures in European football, where one of the great traditional clubs like Celtic, um, clubs like Benfica, like PSG, uh, Ajax, those sort of clubs are lo- are losing managers to teams in the Premier League. We see Brendan Rodgers going to a club like Leicester, who, with all due respect, are significantly smaller than Celtic, but can increase his wages um, significantly and give him a significantly bigger budget. Uh, one of the friends of the transfer window, Roger Mitchell, calls it the brutal polarisation in football. Is that what you think is happening here? Well, I'd exclude PSG from that list, but... Um... Oh, sorry, PSV. Did I not? Did I say PSG? It sounded like PSG to me. Um, sorry, apologies. That was a, it was it was a, it was a consonant foul. Yes, a card for a consonant foul. <laughs> Ta- tactical consonant fouling from Johnny. I'm quite happy uh, to look like an idiot. I look like one almost every week, so I'm sure that the the transfer window listeners will accept my faux pas in good faith. A sexual tyrannosaur like yourself can never be. <laughs> <laughs> uh, self-described, I should know. Hey, small, 
a bit like Fergus McCann, small arms, deep pockets. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Uh, Polarisation in football. Yeah, look, it's just a fact, isn't it? Um, if you look at the latest Deloitte Money League, which assesses uh, the revenue levels of uh, clubs in world football, Leicester City are 22nd in that. Um, Bournemouth are in the top 30 in the in the world on revenue. Leicester's revenue in the last Deloitte Money League was 180 million euros. Celtic's in the last accounts was 101 million pounds, and that's after a you know a good year uh, in the Champions League. So, it, it, from a from in terms of resources, in terms of the quality of players you're capable of working with, in terms of um, what Ian was talking about, that stepping stone to to the big, the really big job that he wants to have in his future, which is, you know, one of the, the top clubs in England. It's obvious that Leicester are ahead of Celtic. Um, and, you know, it's sad. It's obviously sad that, that, that football has switched this way. I mean, I, I talk as a, as a fan of a club who um, breached the uh, UEFA Cup final and should have been in a European Cup final uh, in the in the eighties. I think um, I think I think Johnny I, was still a, Johnny was still a baby dinosaur at that point. <laughs> <laughs> and now, well, yeah, well, they, they now we're now in the in the, the second tier of Scottish football. Were we ever to to get back to the top end of Scottish football? The, the chances of us um, being anything like competitive at the top tier of European football are, are zero. It's never going to happen. And it's never going to happen because of the distribution of money in the game. Um, and, and that's because uh, football broadcast revenue has become so important. Football has become increasingly popular globally. And um, people pay to watch football and the biggest clubs have managed to sequester um, the the lion's share of that television revenue, um, and then you get uh, problems of competitive balance because of it. I mean, I look. I, I was reading a bit the other day. Um, someone saying that Pep, looking at the, the goals scored in the Champions League and how goals scored in the Champions League had gone up um, since Pep Guardiola took over as manager of Barcelona and crediting Pep Guardiola's revolutionary football with the increase in goals in the Premier League. Um, uh, and that, that, for me, is just an example of not understanding that correlation doesn't equal causation because that exact period in which goals have gone up in the Champions League is a period in which the richest teams in the Champions League have got richer and richer. Their access to the Champions League has got easier and easier. And they, they've been put in against weaker and weaker teams because of the Platini Champions route, um, which I think is a good thing, but um, has distorted, contributed to distorting competitive balance in the Champions League. So you get more goals scored by all the top teams. Surprise, surprise. They're much stronger than the opposition. It's not because they're playing different football. It's because they've got better resources than the opposition. But where, where does that leave Scotland? I, you know, I don't, I don't know. I think... Um, I always thought that, uh, you know, going back 10, 15 years ago, I thought there was a good chance that Celtic and Rangers would end up in the Premier League um, simply because they could offer uh, the Premier League to big, you know, historic big clubs with massive supports 
um, with, a, with a global following, um, which you'd think would be attractive to England to have them in the division and cre increase the competition, um, increase the quality of the product. But um, I, I thought that would happen when the broadcast revenue started to slow down. So once the Premier League um, bubble had burst and they, they weren't getting more cash from TV, they would turn to Celtic and Rangers as an easy way to uh, increase revenue. They've never had to do that, and I don't think they're ever going to have to do that. So what can Celtic Rangers do? They can try and petition to get into, to get have some kind of access to a European Super League when that comes around. But it, even that, I think, is going to be difficult for them. Um, and uh, in terms of the, the macro of where the club are uh, with someone like Brendan Rodgers, it, it's just simple. It, it, I don't think it's a hard decision for a guy like Rodgers at all to decide to, to leave Celtic and go to Leicester City. Okay, we're going to move on now to the, well, I was going to say the quickfire round, but we're not doing the quickfire round today. Today is the day of the donkeys. Um, as ever, uh, I'm going to give you the category, which is Jacob Rees, the J, which is the Jacob Rees Mog Award for backing your leader to the hilt. There's always a hint of irony to these things. Ian's going to give us the uh, nominations, and of course, who else but Mr. Duncan Castles is going to decide the awards winner. So, Ian, who's on your list? So I'm just uh, opening the golden envelope now. I thought that was uh, a drum roll. No, that was the uh, that was the golden envelope, Don uh, Johnny. You've obviously got that mistaken. We do have a budget in this uh, podcast, after all, for things like golden envelopes. Um, I'm, I'm thinking um, today that we should probably just take us of a head count of nominations because our first nominee has appeared a few times the donkeys in its infancy mr roy Keane, and maybe we should have a donkey award for most nominations uh, who never actually won come the end of the season um Mitt mccarthy who famously supported his um his national team manager Mick mccarthy to the hilt in uh, the republic of ireland's training camp in saipan ahead of the 2002 world cup in japan and korea um at a team meeting, he obviously uh, 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 denigrated everything from the uh, travel arrangements to the pitch to the manager himself, uh, following that up um, sometime later with the now infamous Manchester United television um, interview in which he slagged off every single one of his players. So uh, in, in, in Kino's um, sort of... Uh, I guess litany of um, of supporting leaders. Then he's disregarded both Mick McCarthy and Sir Alex Ferguson. My uh, second nomination that um, has been put forward is that of Paul Pogba. Uh, obviously, more recently, um, when uh, Jose Mourinho was still in charge, he issued the now um, a rather sort of. Uh, <sighs> how would you call it, so, uh, I don't know, um, the attack, attack, attack is what we should be doing. And that's what we hear from the crowd, um, said Paul, but with regards to um, very unsubtly uh, undermining his manager's tactics, when in fact attack, attack, attack was probably uh, meant more uh, as a message for his manager. My last nomination that I have here um, has to be said, uh, if we look at history, not since acting Lieutenant Fletcher Christian of the infamous HMS Bounty set uh, Lieutenant William Bly and 18 of his loyal crewmen adrift 
during uh, one mutiny. Has Kepa Arizabalaga um, done something similar on the Wembley turf last Sunday uh, with regard to his refusal to be substituted in the League Cup final? Um, fearing, of course, that he would not have the opportunity to face the penalty shooter against Manchester City. Um, again, people have been trying to explain this away, but I think this was a clear act of undermining his, sorry, supporting his leader in every single way he could. And um, we should now hand it over to Dr Duncan Castles to present this week's donkey. I have a very um, strong field of candidates again. I have to say I'm slightly disappointed that John Terry hasn't been included in this list. for, <laughs> And we both know why. His behaviour in 2007. And there's, a, there's an interesting article on the Observer website that I would uh, recommend people reading on, on that subject. Um, tears and icy handshakes is in the headline. But um, of those three, I'm going to let Paul Pogba off because I think um, a, a lot of it comes down to Mino Raiola here. Um, I think he, his problem is, is he, uh, he needs to undermine his uh, financial leader um, rather than his footballing leader, but I'm not sure that'll ever happen. Kepa, Fletcher, um, yes, never seen anything like that before, but I think he's just edged out here by Roy Keane, uh, given that he managed to undermine his entire team uh, twice, his national team, uh, his national team manager, Manchester United team, and Sir Alex Ferguson. So uh, that's, I think, a special qualification, and he deserves this uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg award. As Kino would say, take that, you There's a beat for the podcast. <laughs> I, thought, I thought the ball was there. Maybe it wasn't. <laughs> Can I just point out as well at this moment, um, anyone who supports a mutiny on the bounty is good by me. I never hate, I've hated a chocolate bar more than that coconut chocolate thing. It's dreadful stuff. No wonder Fletcher had a mutiny on it. I mean, how do you fit a whole crew on that one chocolate bar? It's ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, with that bounty chat, it's time to slam this particular transfer window shut. Uh, fear not, as per usual, we will be back on Friday to fulfil all your podcasting needs. Are we plea here, if you guys do like the podcast, please, please, please go on to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a five-star review. The reason this is so important to us is it does lift you up uh, in the iTunes rankings to where people, when they search for a football podcast, you're there. So if you really like what we do and it's provided free after all, get on there. You don't even need to write anything. Just click the five stars and you'll be doing us an enormous favour. To continue the debate, we are all on Twitter and even have our own Transfer Window official account at Transfer Podcast. There we ask questions, we have a bit of feedback from our listeners and of course you will be able to contact us as well as the uh, account is set with its DMs open. If you want to speak to me personally, I'm at Johnny R. McFarlane and more importantly the guys are at GarboSG and at Duncan Castles. Until Friday, thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>